So I bring you greetings from a whole bunch of people that love you. Quig and Annette, uh, you probably know their son Fleet is in the Navy and he's been deployed on like the other side of the planet for months and months. And so they're on their way home now from a trip to visit Fleet. And uh, Barbara also sends greetings. She is in Atlanta because her daughter just gave birth to her latest grandson. So all, on this Mother's Day, all kinds of uh, people loving their kids and running around. But they'll be back next week and look forward to being with us again. So if you were with us last week, you might recall that Landon walked us through the first half of John chapter 2, which is that whole scene where Jesus turns water into wine. Um, And I will warn you, that passage had a very different vibe than our passage this morning as we turn to the second half of that chapter. Last week, um, there was a wedding feast, and it was on the verge of ruin and embarrassment, and Jesus saved the day by making like a few hundred gallons of wine. It was apparently not a Baptist wedding. And it was rather an act of lavish generosity, right? Just kindness that produced mirth and joy and astonishment, right, at Jesus' power and his liberality. But it also meant something, which Landon did a magnificent job unpacking for us. Um, John is, have you noticed this? John is always very careful to call Jesus' miracles by a different name. You notice this? What does John call a miracle in his gospel? signs it's always a sign right and that's because signs signify they convey meaning and what Landon helped us see last week is that that wasn't just an event that happened but it was a revelation he wasn't just being kind he was he was was showing something and this week while the revelation is going to continue I will warn you that joy turns to judgment dancing is exchanged for ducking and the wine is replaced with a whip all right, so we're going to take a look at what he does, but mostly I want you to see what it means. All right, so we're in verse 13, John 2, chapter 2, verse 13, and it says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay, you know, simple enough. It's Passover, Jesus goes to Jerusalem, but when he gets there, he's going to find people selling animals, uh, exchanging foreign currency for the local currency, and he just completely flips. All right, take a look at this in verse 14. It says, in the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Okay, this is a very strong response. Okay, so we want to think about what's going on here. First thing you got to know is there's like, like massive crowds. Hundreds of thousands of people are coming to Jerusalem and the city is mobbed. What I've read historically is that it's just an absolute madhouse. I lived in State College, Pennsylvania where Penn State is located and on the weekends of home football games, the population of the town would literally double. All right, twice as many people were there during a home game. And it was just always a, just a madhouse. Or you can't go to the grocery store, you can't go to restaurants. Every hotel is booked for miles and miles around. And Jerusalem is something like that, although probably worse. And coming, tra- people are traveling long distances to get there. And when they get there, they need to offer sacrifice. And it's really hard to travel with your sheep, you know. And so they didn't bring their sacrificial animals. They would purchase sacrificial animals once they got there. So they need to buy their animals. And you got to bet that they're jacking up the prices. And they got to turn their foreign currency into local currency. And I'm sure the exchange rate is very unfavorable there. It will be a little bit like, you know, you go to Disneyland and they're going to charge you like four bucks for a bottle of water, right? You know that phenomena? That's what's going on. Like I would die of thirst before I paid four dollars for a bottle of water, right? But they have them over a barrel. And so Jesus sees that they're just disadvantaged. They're coming to worship. And everybody's being held in disadvantage. And Jesus just loses it, right? He goes off on them. 
and he clears everything out. The whole thing just, you know, just infuriates them. And that much at least makes sense to me. I know it's weird that gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is chasing people around with a whip. I know that feels very odd, right? But I don't want you to be so tangled up in what he does. I want you to, I want to turn your attention to what he says and what it means because that is where the treasure in this passage lies, okay? So after Jesus drives everybody out and he makes all these religious profiteers angry, they confront him. And the essence of their message is, who do you think you are? I mean, like seriously, what gives you the gall to do this and to flip our whole thing over and blow up our economy? And Jesus gives this super weird answer, okay? Now, to be sure, people are surprised by the whip and the paradigm shift of Jesus running around like this. But I'm telling you, the whip is not the most surprising thing in this story. Far more surprising is his answer to their question. So let's unpack that, okay? Here's what it says. The Jews said to Jesus, what sign, there it is again, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Do you know there's no center stage in this church? You can't tell we were supposed to be here. It's the aisle and there's the stage and you're like, which is it? Okay, so I'll go over a little bit. We'll split the difference. So what sign do you give us? And Jesus answers them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Okay, so first of all, like what? Did you hear the question? Like, what does that have to do with, what are you talking about, Jesus, all right? And not only do they not know what he's talking about, they literally misunderstand what he means. In verse 20, the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Okay, so when he says, destroy this temple in three days and I'll rebuild it, what do they think he means? The building, obviously. What any normal person would think he means is this, this building, right? But he doesn't, okay? Instead, he means something else. And if we're gonna understand really what's going on with the something else. We gotta leave this passage and go on a brief history of the temple. And so though you think we're studying John 2 today, we're actually gonna do an Old Testament survey, okay? So come with me on a journey. In your Bible, scroll back throughout the Old Testament. What is the first, we're gonna study the temple, the theme of temple through the scriptures. What is the first temple in the Bible? Say it again. In the desert, okay, are you thinking perhaps, you're thinking of the tabernacle, they're dragging around with them? It's not a bad, bad answer, but it's also not a right answer, so good, okay? It's okay, we always get stuff wrong on the way to getting it right. First temple, say it again louder. Okay, that's after the tabernacle, so yes, we're going, we're gonna go back the other direction, but I heard it over here, what was it? It is the Garden of Eden, okay? The first temple in the Bible is the Garden of Eden. And that may not be obvious to you, but I promise it's true. I'm gonna try to prove it to you very quickly, okay? I'm not just trying to be cute here. This is not some silly, no, this is like actually so, okay? The Garden of Eden is the place where God walked with man, where God walks with Adam and Eve. And that in the absolute central core of the temple, that's what the temple is. The temple is the place where heaven meets earth. It's the place where the boundaries draw thin and the garden of Eden, garden of eden is unmistakably pictured as a temple throughout the scriptures okay a couple there's a whole bunch of clues i'll just give you a few of them um adam's job you might recall in the garden was to cultivate and to keep the land to cultivate and keep now none of us speak hebrew but the, the verbs there are abad and samar and those two verbs abad and samar are exactly what is used to describe the role of priests very hard to notice it because you translate them differently, which is very unhelpful. Generally, it's called to serve and the guard, to serve and to guard. But when, when the Old Testament writers are reaching for the language to describe the role of the priests, they do so in the exact language that was given to Adam, to Abad and to Samar, okay? 
That language is all drawn from Genesis 2. Later on in Ezekiel 28, there's this really weird, like this incredible scene that describes someone in the garden, in the Garden of Eden, but he's wearing a garment that is like, you know, just covered with these gems, these 12 precious gems, which you might recognize. Who wears the, who wears the thing with all the gems on it? You know, it's the priest. The priest wears these, these jewels. And so the, this one who is seen as wearing the garment of the priest is placed in the Garden of Eden. And if you've ever thought that the Jewish lampstand, kind of think Hanukkah in your mind with all these kind of branches coming up. If you've ever thought that that thing looks like a tree, that's because it's supposed to look like a tree and not just any tree. But that is a, a, not a reenactment. That is a model of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a tree or maybe, or maybe the tree of life, right? And that thing is meant to look like that. And in fact, in fact, the, the, if you go to the temple and you read the descriptions of the temple, particularly, it's very clear in 1 Kings 6 and 7, that there's a whole slew of horticultural connections in the temple. The temple is decorated with things like pomegranates and palm trees and open flowers and cherubim, which while not plants are nevertheless Edenic imagery, right? That thing is designed so that when you walk into the temple, it reminds you of the Garden of Eden because the Garden of Eden is the temple. The entrance to the Garden of Eden with the cherubim guarded, do you remember what direction it faced? Faces east. You know what direction the temple opens to? East. And what is the central event that takes place in the temple? What is the thing that goes on day after day, week after week, year after year in the temple? Sacrifice. This is the place where the sacrifices happen. Did you know that the Garden of Eden is the place that the first sacrifice happened? It's a little bit obscure, but when Adam and Eve cover themselves with leaves and it's insufficient, their sin and their shame can't be covered, God's like, you know what? Just drop with the leaves. That's not going to work. And what does he make for them? A garment of skin. What do you have to do to turn an animal into a garment of skin? You got to kill it, all right? The garden is the place where the first temple happened. Their sin was covered, their shame covered, their sin atoned because he offered a sacrifice. The garden is the first temple. The garden is where God meets man. It's where heaven touches earth. It's where the sacrifices are offered. But they got kicked out of the garden and the temple was lost. And so at the right time, God has them build a new temple only this one is transportable. And what do they call that one? Tabernacle, tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And so as they're cruising around through the wilderness, they're dragging around them this tent. It is a gigantic, unbelievably heavy tent and you would never want to take it on the Appalachian Trail, but it's a tent, okay? And this is the place where God meets man, where heaven touches earth, where the sacrifices are offered. And then finally, eventually, ultimately, they get to build a temple out of stone. Who builds this one? Remember Solomon's temple? This was a big deal. And they finally built, this is like centuries leading up to this. And they finally get to build a temple. And that temple, once again, was where God met with man, where heaven met earth, where the sacrifices were offered. It was beautiful. It was the center of worship. It's the most important place in Israel's life. But just like sin gets them kicked out of the first garden, the first temple, that place where God walked with them, Sin loses them this temple too. And Solomon's temple was destroyed. Now, this happens in 586 BC, 
okay? 586 BC, after centuries, I mean, literally centuries of warning that there's a judgment coming, there's a judgment coming, you better watch out. Finally, Babylon rolls into town and in this horrific divine judgment, everything just gets obliterated, okay? It is, once you get past, in, in the Old Testament, once you get past creation, fall, flood, Babel, right? A lot of bad stuff, some good stuff, some bad stuff happening there in these early pages of Genesis. But once you get past that, the central historical event in the entire Old Testament is the destruction of the temple. All of the prophets are, con- I mean, it goes hundreds and hundreds of pages in the scriptures. Every, all of the prophets, they either write before it saying, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, watch out, repent, it's coming, or they sit in the midst of the misery of it saying, I cannot believe it's finally here. Or they're right after it and they'll look back and be like, wow, what now, right? It's the central event. Here's how Second Chronicles puts it. It says, uh, they set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and they burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. It was a huge, huge, massive event. And they spend 70 years without temple, without city, without home. And they begin to dream of making a new temple. And in fact, Ezekiel, a huge chunk of Ezekiel's book is written about this new temple that will be rebuilt, right? It actually goes on for pages and pages and pages and pages. And don't tell them that I said this, but it's boring, okay? It's just, inf- it just endlessly goes on and on and on about how thick the walls are and, da, 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 and you're like, I don't know what to do with this, okay? But then it comes to this climactic moment and it stops being boring. It finally gets to the point and it's incredible, okay? This temple that Ezekiel sees, it is huge and beautiful and glorious. And at the climax, he sees a river flowing out of the temple, okay? P.S., do you know where else a river flew- flowed out of? Eden, all right? You guys are catching on, okay? So this river comes out and it's a weird river because it gets deeper as it goes. It doesn't happen. If you get it, it starts with a little trickle and then it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. It's like physically, this, is, this isn't a thing. This can't happen. It's ankle deep and then it's knee deep and then it's waist deep and then it's this impassable thing, okay? And I'm gonna read you a part of it, the best part of it. In Ezekiel 47, you can follow along. I have it on screen probably. Very good, thank you. It says this in verse six. Then this angel who's shown Ezekiel this temple this angel led me, back, led me back to the bank of the river. And as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. Verse nine, wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be many, very many fish. For this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where this river goes. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, they will grow all kinds of trees for food and their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary, that is from the temple. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. You guys, Ezekiel saw that there will be a temple whose river turns salt water fresh. He takes things that are dead. It will make them alive. The crowds will gather, living things will thrive there and the very leaves along its banks will bring healing. Problem was, this was all just vision and it hadn't happened yet. And so do you know what they decided to do? Can you guess? They build a new temple. 
Do you remember who builds this one? Who builds the replacement temple to, to kind of replace the one that, Sol, that Solomon had built but was destroyed? Do you remember this? He's got a funny name. Zerubbabel, right? He's the guy. So Zerubbabel builds a new temple. And this is a little bit obscure, but do you know what the old men did when they saw the new temple? They weep. They do, in fact. This is in Ezra 3, verse 12. But many of the older priests and the Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. And no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise. And the sound was heard far away. This is admittedly a little bit of a confusing scene. It's just a cacophony of sound. But essentially what's happening is the younger guys that didn't know any better, they're happy. Hey, we have a temple again. Isn't that great? But the old guys that remember the previous one, they're reduced to tears because this is not very glorious. This is not as good as Solomon's temple and it sure as heck is not as good as the temple that Ezekiel saw. In fact, it was just a little bit meh. Haggai 3 says this, or 2-3, says, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? And they're disappointed. Things have not gone the way they hoped it would go. It was disappointing and I don't know where Ezekiel's temple is, but they know this ain't it. This can't be it, okay? Now, with all that in your brain, your little history lesson of the temple, now let's go back to John chapter two. Ezekiel's glorious temple had not been built when Jesus had this conversation. And in fact, it still hasn't been built. Do you know why it hasn't been built? Because the temple ain't a building no more, all right? The temple is the place where God and man meet. The temple is the place where heaven touches earth. The, he the temple is the place where sin is atoned for by death. And what Jesus is saying is, the temple is me. He's the temple. He is the glorious one. He is the temple to which all the temples point. He is the fulfillment of, of the garden with its life-giving joy. He is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. In fact, in John chapter one, you, you may know this line, it says that, that, that God, that Jesus came and he dwelt among us. Literally the word that John uses there for dwelt is it literally says that he came and tabernacled among us, right? He went on a trip to be with us. Jesus is the fulfillment of Ezekiel's great temple. It is in him that the waters grow fresh. It's in him that the crowds come to gather. And it is from him that the spirit flows who brings healing and life. You guys, Jesus cleared the temple so he could reveal the temple because the temple is him. He is the place where God and man meet. He is the place where heaven touches earth, where sin is atoned and where glory dwells. And Jesus is saying, it's me, I am the temple. Okay, now there's a whole lot more. We're just doing such a blitz through this massive theme of temple. But just review where we've been, okay? All right, 
So we've seen, there's a couple more spots on this kind of journey. We've seen the, the temple story begins in the garden, right? Moves on through the tabernacle. Then it gets picked up in Solomon's temple, right? And then it gets, it gets figured in Ezekiel's temple, which never gets built. In Zerubbabel's temple, which is kind of a disappointment. And then in Jesus himself, right? He is the fulfillment of the temple. But there are two more quick stops before we're done. Because do you know what you become if you are united to him? You are temple. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, for we are the temple of the living God. If you are united to him, he is building us together to join him in this place. We are where God lives. He walks with us. It's fulfilled, further fulfilled in us. And then finally, I want you to skip ahead to the very end of the story, okay? This theme that we started in the garden and we're gonna end, everything starts in the first three chapters of the Bible and everything ends in the last three chapters. It's amazing how many things get tied up here at the very, very end of the story, okay? So thing you need to know about the Old Testament, I mean about Revelation, is that everything is non-literal, but it's real and it's true. He's using images and metaphors and pictures and symbols to convey things that are true. So I want you to look at this. If you're going to understand the meaning of all those metaphors, all those images, the answer key inevitably is the Old Testament. Whatever image he's using, they exist. It's just all a giant grab bag from the Old Testament. Right? He's going to borrow things from there. So does anybody remember the dimensions of the new Jerusalem? As John sees the city coming down from heaven to earth, dressed like a bride, beautifully prepared for her husband, what are the dimensions of the city? Anybody remember? It is like a cube. What's the size? Yeah, so yeah, and in Bible language, it's about 1,200 stadia, which is about 1,400, 1,500 miles wide and about 1,400 or 1,500 miles deep, okay? That is a big city, all right, first of all. Like, so that's like half the United States. You could drop this thing like, boom, like Mississippi East, you know? It's like, there it is. This is this whole massive thing. And that much we can get, so it's huge, John, we get it. But it's also 1,400 miles tall, what on earth does it mean for a city to be 1,400 miles tall? Like what, how, what does that even look like? Can you imagine a city, and the tallest skyscraper in like Dubai is not a quarter of a mile tall, right? So it's 1,400 wide, 1,400 deep, 1,400 tall. Well, if the Old Testament is our key, there's one, it's a cube, right? There's exactly one cube in the entire Old Testament. What is it? Do you know? The Holy of Holies, John. Okay, it is the Holy of of holies, the center of the temple, the place where the thing is. And so why does John say, hey, when the city comes down, it's gonna be a giant cube? What he's saying is this. He goes on to explain himself in just a moment. In chapter 21, if you're in Revelation 21, what he's saying is there's not gonna be a temple because everything is going to be temple for we will be with him at last. Listen to this. In Revelation 21, we'll start at verse 22. And John says, I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. 
And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit and yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. You hear it, don't you? What is that river, you guys? That is Ezekiel's river. It is also the spirit of God. But the temple from which this river flows is not a building. It is the Lord and the lamb. It's all him and we will be all his. The one to whom the temple points has come to be the temple. And he has come to unite us to himself such that we become temple. For the day is coming when all will be temple. And this is what he's been doing from the dawn of creation. Friends, we will walk with God when heaven meets earth to his glory and our joy. And that, y'all, is why Jesus cleared the temple. And it's why he had the authority to clear the temple. In fact, do you remember the question that the Jews asked him that set us on this little journey? It was, why do you have the authority to clear the temple? And his answer was, because I am the temple. In his zeal for the Father, he got their attention so he could reveal to them and pronounce to them that it is all fulfilled in him. All of it. Everything he's doing from the beginning of time to this very moment until the very end of the game is fulfilled in him. He's the reason for it all. He is the atoning sacrifice. He's the place where we meet him. He is the source of joy. He is the source of beauty. It is all in him. And you are invited into the temple so much that you get to be temple. The book of Revelation ends with this dreadful picture of what would it be to be excluded from this, to be outside. Y'all, life is about getting into this temple, being united to him. All that he is doing in all of human history is about this. And so when he says, you guys have ruined the temple, it's because you, you, you've made it something that blocks you from seeing that it is all fulfilled in me. Today, right now, if you have never understood this and you want to be united to him where life is rich and your ultimate purpose comes to be fulfilled, come, come. Why perish? Why stand off far away when joy could be yours? These curved rails are just a place for you all by yourself to meet with him. The straight rails, you can come. Someone can meet you there and you can talk. And we invite you to come. The spirit and the lamb say, come, come. Don't stand far off. All that he is is available for you. It's why he made you. Lord Jesus, who is like you? Who would have the audacity, just the gall, to clear the temple? Only you. Only you. For it is all fulfilled in you. We bow before you. We worship you. We exalt you. 
And Lord, we pray for all those in this room and outside of this room who don't yet know you. Would you move in their hearts and draw them to yourself? That they would delight in you to be united to you for all of time. We long for your coming. Come soon. Bring the temple. Be the temple. Be with us. We love you. We miss you. Come soon. Amen.